Okay, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Um, I want to talk about uh, a lot of different things today, um, and all kind of under the the, the rubric of uh, of being yourself and the importance of being yourself, and approach it from uh, a number of different angles. And um, the the first the first thing is um, something that that I saw. It's it's not as widely discussed, um, but it's to me it's a, it's a very compelling sort of um, understanding or, or or category within this idea of false prophecy. So, uh, a lot of us tend to think of a, a false prophet as someone who says God told him to uh, to declare this following thing. And yet God didn't tell him to say it. He just made it up, essentially. But he made it up and he attributed it to God. So that's probably the, the classic case of a false prophet. But there, there, are other, there are other variations of what the Torah calls false prophecy. And it's subject to chayv misa, to, to the death penalty. So this is a very serious, um, this is a very serious uh, act. Uh, and... This is this is the one that I was intrigued by, which is let's say God um, talks to a prophet, gives prophecy, and everyone should know we've had male and female prophets, so there's no, it's not gender based. Anyone, male or female, could be a prophet and has been. So um, God says a gives a particular message to a a, a person, and now. Through some set of circumstances, I, I don't know what, you can come up with your own variation of it. I'll give you one that just comes to mind, but it, it's not contingent on this alone. Let's say that that prophet receives the prophecy and writes it down. Okay? Now, another person comes, finds that, finds that prophecy, and says it word for word, exactly what God told that prophet. This other person delivers that prophecy word for word without changing one word. That person is called by the Torah a false prophet and is subject to the death penalty. So, so in other words, just so we're communicating, if someone other than the prophet himself delivers this prophecy as a prophecy even if the content is the same, then it's called false prophecy by the Torah, by the laws of the Torah. Now, I'll tell you why I'm, I'm so intrigued by that. It's because, if you think about it, it means that when Hashem sends a message into the world, He doesn't just send the message itself, He also sends the messenger. And it's not just what's being said, God deliberately picks who he wants to deliver that message initially, at least the first time, into the world. So, so that, means, that means something, I think, very deep to, to each and every one of us. <clears throat> because all of us have a truth to deliver to the world. And no one else can deliver our truth to the world. We've been selected to reveal that aspect to the world. And we have to be the ones to do it. And no one else can do it. So, 
when I say that truth, you know, I... You know, there's... I remember I was talking with someone, very sweet, beautiful, sincere person. And basically they were trying to figure out existence on their own. And on some level we all have to figure out what we're doing here and everything like that and arrive at the truth. But I guess this person felt compelled to figure it out on his own and not to draw on the thousands of years of received wisdom. You know, we are so privileged to be in this line of giants, basically. Spiritual giants. And so, so, so the, the point is not to um, invent a new truth, but to reveal other aspects of the truth. Um, I was so moved uh, by a, a teaching uh, by Rabbi Manish Friedman, I, I heard it, which is, which is that so many of us think that we, when we, when we do a mitzvah, let's say to, we say a blessing over a cup of coffee or something like that, we take that, that coffee, which was sort of spiritually neutral at that point, and we raise it up, and through the blessing, we sanctify it, we make it holy. But there's a much deeper level to that, which is that God who fills the entire world also fills the space where the coffee is as well, which means it already has an inherent holiness to it. So what is one doing by making a blessing, which is acknowledging the source of the coffee in this instance? You are revealing the godliness that's there. In other words, you're not making it holy. If God fills the entire world, it's already holy on some level. But you're revealing the holy that, holiness that's there. And then, by the way, that adds to its holiness. So it's kind of a, a, a full circle. So in other words, the greatness of revealing the truth is huge. Um, a version of this which was moving to me was, I'm going to make up a series of names, so don't, don't go by the names, but just listen to the point. If you look at the way the language of the Gomorrah and the way the Gomorrah speaks, it will say something like, um, uh, Rav Chia says in the name of uh, Rebbe, who said in the name of uh, Shammai. And then they'll give you the, the teaching. Now, who said the teaching? Well, the first name that you encountered there was Reb Chia. So that, that, says a, that has a, an emotional impact, because that's the first name that you encounter. But what, what, what was it that the, that the Gomorrah just said? So, again, I'm, I'm making up these names, but here's the point. It said, Reb Chia said in the name of someone else, who said in the name of Shammai. So it was Shammai's point. It wasn't Reb Chia's point. It was Shammai's point. And yet, the, the, the beauty of the Talmud is, is that it's attributing it to Reb Chia first and foremost. In other words, a lot of us feel like, well, you know what? If all I'm doing is just repeating what the other person said, what have I really contributed? And yet, and yet, so here you have the other side of it. On the one hand, we can't copy other people. And we can't steal their prophecy. We have to give our own thing. But on the other side, look how the Gomorrah features and gives such covet and honor to the person who says something in someone else's name. So there's tremendous greatness in terms of spreading the light. In other words, once the candle is lit, 
to be able to light other candles is awesome. Even if you, even if your candle was lit by someone else. So, so I want to go more deeply into this because there was a line from from the parsha that we just read, parsha Shmos, um, the beginning of the book of Exodus, which of course has this amazing dual quality. It's the book of you know, our descent into slavery, and yet at the same time, simultaneously, it's the book of redemption. By the way, there's something, and this is, I'm just going to give you the beginning of the thought. You can think about it more on your own. I know I want to think about it more on my own, because I, I don't feel as though I've fully mined this thought yet. But, but the beginning of it is, is, I think, fairly intriguing, so I just want to share it with you. Um, you know... Breshis and Shmos, Genesis and Exodus, are kind of um, compan- are, are very much companion books, because because um, Genesis Breshis is talking about the creation of the world, but it ends literally. The last word is Bimitzrayim, in Egypt. It's talking about Joseph being embalmed in a coffin, basically, in Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. And then, what you have is the book of Exodus, which is us becoming slaves, and then getting the Torah at Mount Sinai, and then building the Mishkan, which is the the, the idea of that, even though it seems like we're leaving this very amazing, exciting narrative, and then going into all this technical, you know, building, you know, information. But what that's talking about, really like the Ramban discusses this, is basically turning the entire world into a dwelling place of godliness. So, and that, that completes really the story of, that began with Genesis. In other words, the world is created, and then we become partners with God in terms of revealing the godliness in the world and making the entire world a dwelling place for God. Okay? So they're partner books. So why am I emphasizing that? Because here's the point. We've talked about Atbash before, which is a system of letter exchanges, where you take the first letter of the Aleph base and you switch it for the last letter. So At, Aleph becomes Taf, Bash, base becomes Shin, and then Gimel becomes Resh, Dalit becomes Kuf, and you go all the way through and you can flip letters around and it's It's a system to reveal infinite layers of understanding within the Torah. Now listen to this. Breshis is Beis. Right? What's the Atbash of Beis? Shin. What's the next book of the Torah? Shmos. In other words, the first two books of the Torah are Atbashes for each other. And, again... That's just the beginning of the thought. Hopefully in future, <laughs> future weeks or whatever it is, we'll, we'll fully mine it. But, um, <clears throat> but I want to go further. So, so the world is about to change. Moshe is about to encounter the burning bush. Okay? And the Pusik, the verse of the Torah, right before that, I'll read it to you. Uh, it's in chapter. Uh, it's in chapter two. 
And it's, it's um, verse 1. So, Moshe was shepherding the sheep of Yisro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He guided the sheep far into the wilderness, and he arrived at the mountain of God toward Horeb. Alright, and then the next thing that happens is, oh, I'm sorry, that's uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The, the next thing that happens is, um, it says that an angel of Hashem appeared to him in the blaze from the, from the, from the, from the bush. Okay? But the, the thing that really got me there was if you, if, you actually, if you look in the Hebrew there, it says he guided the, ship, the, the sheep far into the wilderness. The, the, the Hebrew there is Acher Hamidbar. Acher Hamidbar. So it means he got to the end of the desert. He got to the end of the wilderness. Now you know, Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Did he know what was about to happen the next moment? That he's about to see the burning bush? Right? Can you imagine you're a step away from seeing something that's going to change, not just the course of your life, but the course of human civilization. But you haven't seen it yet but you're a step away from seeing it. So that's where he is in this Pasuk. He's a step away from seeing it. And where is he seeing it? Achar Hamidbar. At the end of the desert. So, Rashi says something very interesting. Rashi says, Why was he going to the end of the desert? Because he wanted his sheep to to graze on on, on grass, I guess, or plants that didn't belong to someone else. Because if they belonged to someone else, it would be theft. So he wanted to go to this place where he wasn't stealing. And then because he wanted to go to a place where he wasn't stealing, he encounters, by the way, the burning bush, a lot of people don't know this, the burning bush was at Mount Sinai. That, that's where the Jews come later on and they get the Torah. But it wasn't Mount Sinai as we know it yet. You know, it was just this little mountain with a burning bush in front of it, right? So let's make sure we get the point because believe it or not, we're on the same subject from what we started with. Um... So because he didn't want to steal from anyone else, he goes to the end of the desert, the end of the wilderness, and he encounters massive revelation. Massive revelation. So, you know, in the Hasidus of Kutsk, they're very big about not copying from other people and not to be an imitation of other people. And on some level, if you're copying other people, or you're becoming an imitation of other people, you know what that is? That's theft. It's theft on two levels. One, you're stealing their, their act, right? Not that they're acting, but you're, you're stealing their essence. You're taking their prophecy, so to speak, right? On another level, it's theft because you're stealing from yourself. Because you're depriving yourself 
of your own potential of putting your uniqueness into the world that God gave you to reveal into the world. So look what happens with Moshe. Because he doesn't want to steal from other people, he goes to the edge of the wilderness. What's the wilderness? You know something? What am I doing in this world? What am I doing in my life? It's all one big wilderness. Where I don't know where I'm going. You know, I, I, I wrote a song one time, which is, this is the chorus. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going. But the driver is good. Right? So, you know, we're all in the middle of the wilderness, basically. But then, you know, sometimes in the wilderness you can get in touch with yourself. I know in my own life, when I decided that I really wanted to start keeping Shabbos, that was the first time in my life that I was by myself. I was in Europe, and uh, I mean, I was surrounded by people, but I had never been alone before, you know, without, surrounded by friends or schoolmates or whatever it is. You know, in the wilderness, a lot of times, and you can see who you are and what you want. There's a very, very famous story. Well, let me start with the less famous story. Now I'll start with the more famous story, which is, I'm sure you all know it, but it's so strong, which is, they said... Reb Zusha said, one of the great Hasidic masters, he says, you know, at the end of my life, I'm not afraid when I stand before the heavenly court that they're going to say, why weren't you more like Moshe Rabbeinu? Why didn't you reach the level of Moses? What I'm afraid is, they're going to say, Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? So, again, this point, the, the imperative of revealing to the world who we are, and what we can do. Of course, within the context of the Torah. Here's the less famous story. It said um, about one of the big uh, Ger Rebis. Not positive which one it was. It may have been the Imre Emes. And he became Rebbe. And, you know, Ger was, came from Kutsk. So there was this premium in Ger about not copying other people. You know? So, they were, when he became the Rebbe, some of the Hasidim became sort of annoyed with him because he wasn't keeping certain minhagim, certain customs of the previous Rebbe, his father. And he said, listen, if I kept those, if I kept the customs of the Rebbe, I wouldn't be Rebbe. In other words, the only way I became Rebbe was by not copying. Okay, so now I want to go more more into this, but kind of approach it from a completely different angle right now. And um, I was going to... I thought of a, a name for a talk that I wanted to give. And so that's the name of this section right now. So I'll tell you the name of it, because I kind of like the title, which is The Irrelevance of Envy. So...
So, what does that mean? The irrelevance of envy. So, so it's like this. See, envy comes from when you think, like, uh, I heard Reb Shlomo define jealousy in the following way. He says, jealousy comes from thinking that someone else has your portion. See, but the thing is, is that they don't have your portion. They have their portion. Right? So, you know, I, I often thought that the reason why I don't have a Lamborghini is not because God ran out of Lamborghinis. <laughs> By the way, not that I want a Lamborghini, but... <laughs> But it's not, whatever it is, fill in the blank, it's not because there's a shortage of that that we don't have that. That's absolutely not it, you know. Okay, so now listen to this. Listen to what the Gomorrah says. Because it's, 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 it's such a simple, the way they put it is so simple that it's so deceptive because I think that this is really the key to understanding a massive amount of the, the human condition, this, this teaching. But it's going to sound very simple, but please don't disregard it because it sounds so simple. So there's a verse in the Torah that says, Moshe says, now what does God want from you? Only that you should fear him. Okay, that's the English word. Really, it means yira. Yira is, is, is like this awesome, it's translated as fear. There's an, just, since we're on the subject, just very quickly, there's a higher fear and a lower fear. The lower fear is God's going to zap me if I don't do X, right? All right, there's something to that. There's a role for that for sure. But that's not really the essence of it. The essence of it is the higher Yira, which is the way the Baal Shem Tov, I heard explained it, was that you're in the king's palace, And it's so awesome, it's so awesome that you're afraid to disturb anything. In other words, it's that the relationship with God is so prized and so precious that you don't want to do anything to to disturb the closeness. And so that's so you want to be very careful. And that's that's the awe. That's 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 what's it's a very exalted frame of mind. Unfortunately it's translated as fear, which is a bummer. But anyway, there you go. So we'll use the word Yira. So, so Moshe says, what does God ask? Just that you should have, only that you should have Yira. And so the rabbis in the Gemara jump all over this and say, only that you should have Yira? Is that a small thing? That's a huge thing. That's an awesome attainment. So, so they answer the following. For Moshe, because Moshe had it, it was a small thing. In other words, that's why Moshe used the word only. Because Moshe had it. Now they give an example, and here's really what I want you to hear. So they say, what can this be compared to? Imagine someone needs a large pot, but they only have small pots. Right? So they go to someone, they knock on the door of someone who has a large pot. And they say, can I have your large pot? And he goes, yeah. Now for him, it's not a big deal to have a large pot, because he has a large pot. But for the people who have small pots, who need a large pot, to have a large pot is a very big deal. But for the person who has the large pot, it's not a big deal because he has the large pot. Alright, so now this is a giant insight into human nature. Okay? 
Let's approach it from the standpoint of the person who has the large pot. Now, I'm going to give you sort of a kind of a bizarre piece of imagery right now, okay? Because we're going to work with this. A baby Ruth bar. Imagine a baby Ruth bar. A baby Ruth bar cannot read the wrapper that it's in. (laughs) Alright? The baby Ruth bar is inside the wrapper that says on the outside, Baby Ruth. The baby Ruth bar can't read the wrapper that it's in. Everyone around it can read Baby Ruth, but the Baby Ruth bar itself cannot read Baby Ruth because it's inside the wrapper. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that we make, again, bad math. This is terrible math, but all of us do it. And this is getting back to this idea now of the irrelevance of envy, which is we look at another person and we say, this person has X and this person has Y. And we put all of our desires and all those things that X and Y mean on that person. And we think that because we have such prized emotions attached to these things that that other person has, that that other person also has those same emotions about what they have. And it's not the case. It's not the case. Because the person with the large pot thinks it's normal to have a large pot. They don't know what it is not to have a large pot because they have a large pot. That's life. You know, I was thinking like Brad Pitt, to use an example, right? So just because he's currently maybe the biggest movie star, certainly one of them. When he travels, and I'm just making this up because I don't know about his lifestyle, but I imagine when he goes to Paris, and I imagine if he stays in a hotel in Paris... I imagine it's a really nice hotel. (laughs) And I imagine that it has a really good view of the city of Paris. All right? But I also imagine that that's normal for him. In other words, wherever he goes, I'm sure it's a really nice place with a really good view. That's what it is. So someone who walks in and goes, this is such a nice place, look at that view. I'm sure he's thinking, for sure he's not an idiot. Yeah, of course, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, it's a really good view. But this is where I stay and this is what I see. This is what it looks like out the window of the places where I stay. <laughs> you know, this is, that's the large pot. That's normal. That's the baby root bar not being able to read the wrapper on the outside. We are attributing all sorts of things, wow, to this. I mean, um, what is amazing is how quickly for human beings, any situation after a period of time becomes normal. Even the most abnormal circumstances at a certain point become normal. The Jews in the desert, a lot of people say this, and... I'm sure I've said it at some point myself, but I I don't feel this way anymore, which is people say, the Jews in the desert, how could they have complained? You know, God is raining down bread on them every day for 40 years. That's the whole point. If God rained down bread on you for 40 years every single day, you would think, all right, there's bread falling from the sky. This This is what it is. This is the way the world works. Bread falls from the sky. 
is what it is. You know, so 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 the idea that that somehow I ah, you know. So so that brings us to the next point. The next point being a teaching from Perke Avos, who's rich? The person who's happy with their lot, Sameach Bechelka, happy with what they have. You see, what I'm trying to suggest, sort of a kind of a bit of a bold assertion here, but what I'm trying to suggest is that more or less, and I'm not talking about extreme cases right now where people are in utter agony and suffering from, you know, something horrible, lo elenu, shouldn't have any of these things in our lives. I'm talking about the, the average person, which is more or less most of us, okay? We're basically all the same. We're basically all the same. Because we're all the baby Ruth bar inside the wrapper who can't read the wrapper. Basically, what we have is our self and our thoughts. It's basically what we all have. So, so that being the case, if one can um, achieve a level of tranquility and simcha, of happiness with what they have, then they are rich. Just like someone who has a lot, they might have like the special edition wrapper with the big sweepstakes thing, right? But on the inside, they're just who they are. Everyone is just who they are. So that means that happiness is wealth. It is wealth. Because at that point, if you can access the joy of life, the joy of being alive, of participating in this massive project that the world is, if you can be joyful with that, then you're rich. You know, I once thought of something, and it's, it, it'll sound kind of strange, but it's relevant, which is, I thought to myself, you know, Let's say, you know, think about your sort of, your, the, the wildest version of your success fantasy, whatever that would be, you know? So, um, I'm, only, I'm, I'm, I'm only being half serious here, but, but I'm also being half serious. Maybe, maybe more than half. I thought to myself, okay, well, let's say you have a giant hit movie or something like this. Well, then what are you going to do? Well, then maybe, maybe I'll sit by a, a swimming pool with a drink in my hand and light a cigar. Right? And then I thought to myself, well, why can't I just sit by a swimming pool with a drink in my hand and light a cigar right now? I mean, it's like, if that's, if that's what it's going toward, just do that. You know? So... So, in other words, but you can access happiness. Now, of course, there's, there's a great role. One of the ways to really access it is not to pretend, but, but hard work. 
hard work is often a component and, and, and is, that often brings out the fullness of it. You have to really work hard in, in, in terms of whatever it is. Right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be contingent. One, we often hold ourselves hostage to, to the result kicking in. And we make our happiness contingent on the result. But God is telling us all the time in a million different ways the happiness has to come from the work. And that's it. Because the results are in His hands. You know? So that's good news and that's bad news. The bad news is, is that what if He doesn't want to give me that result? But the good news is, is that I can be happy just based on the work. So if my ultimate goal is to experience that level of tranquility and happiness, then, then I can get that right now. That's not being denied for me. So, so I had a new take, and again, just, just to make sure that you understand that we're really talking about one subject here today. The importance of being yourself. And what we said was not, not copying other people, making sure that you deliver your message to the world. Right? And also, one of the things that stops us from, or makes us want to copy other people and everything like that, is this idea of envy. Because we think that they have something that we don't have. But the reality is, is that they're, the, they're just themselves, just like we're just ourselves. So we're back at the same starting point. Even if one, you know, in, in, uh, in 12-step programs, they have something called, uh, I love this term, pulling a geographic. So what pulling a geographic means is that when someone has a set of problems, let's say they have an addiction or something like that, they go, you know what the problem with my life is? I'm in New York, I should be in Chicago. So they move with their addiction to Chicago. (laughs) That's called pulling a geographic. Right? As opposed to, well, what's, what is, maybe they should go to Chicago, by the way. I'm not saying they shouldn't go to Chicago, but, but the bottom line is, is that the bigger issue is not where they are, it's what they are. And what they need to work through. Whatever that is. So all of us, all of us are essentially the same. In, in, in the most cutting way. And then the question is, what are we doing with ourselves? And the answer is, we have to figure out what it is that we can contribute uniquely and find out the most beautiful way to do that in the world. And, uh, and not to be fooled by, um, by, by the success barometers that society puts up. Because... Because we tend to correlate, you know, you see, you see, there are different ways to have a giant impact in the world. One way to have a giant impact in the world is to write the best-selling book, right, that sells millions and millions of copies or something like that. How about another thing is just to do your thing and then you inspire someone else who writes a best-selling book. It sells millions and millions of copies. Or you do your thing, and that inspires someone else who inspires someone else who inspires someone else who inspires someone else who does something amazing. I mean, in other words, in other words, the amazingness is traced back to you. And what did you do? You just, you lived your thing. You did your thing. So, so we have no idea the impact 
You know, you know, there's... And it boils down to being truthful. And also being in the moment. So here's the last thing that I just want to mention for now. Again, it's going to sound like an entirely different subject, but I really am talking about the same thing. And that's, um, I got a, a totally different understanding, like a much better understanding of what witchcraft is all about. <laughs> um, so witchcraft basically um, is prohibited by the Torah. And there are all sorts of different versions of witchcraft that the, that the Torah talks about. One of them is predicting the future. Not supposed to predict the future. Okay? And there's a Torah commandment to be a, a tam, to be tamim, which means to be pure or whole or complete or simple in the most beautiful definition of that, of that, of that word, with God. And, and from that commandment to walk as a, with, with tamimus kite, with, 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 this, with this pureness, the, the, the rabbis learn out that what that commandment is, is that you shouldn't try to predict the future. Okay? So now, believe it or not, the Torah does believe that there are ways to access the universe in such a way where you can use witchcraft in some way to, to produce things. Like, for instance, the, the magicians of, of, of Paro, of, of, the, of, the, of the royal court of Egypt, were experts in black magic and could duplicate certain plagues and things like that. I heard from Rabbi Aaron that one of the reasons why God put the Jews in Egypt to be taken out is because if, if Moshe had done the miraculous plagues in other countries, the other countries would say, yeah, that's pretty good, but you know, the Egyptians can do all of that. So in other words, they had to go to the capital of black magic to show that all of this was that God was supreme. So, but I never understood this idea of, 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 of magic or, or witchcraft, right? Now, if you want to get a little more sort of like Kabbalistic about it, they talk about accessing what's called the Tzad Atuma, which means the path of spiritual impurity, and that that's somehow how these things are wrought. And that essentially was the extent of my learning on the subject until a few days ago when I got a, just a different point of view on it. See, one of the things that bothered me is if you think of sort of like, you know, think of Hashem filling the world and everything like that. Hashem is pure. Hashem is good. Hashem is holy. So what is this idea that there's a tzad hatuma, like a path of impurity within God? It didn't make any sense that somehow you're going within some nether reach of God to this tumidic aspect of God? I mean, God forbid it. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What is, so what is this language talking about? What, what is it saying exactly? Okay, so, so then I realized, I think, what it's saying. At least on one level. So, so let's start from the beginning. It says, God, Hashem says to us, live in the moment. Don't try to predict the future. Now, for every single mitzvah God gives us, He gives us the ability to do the opposite. 
So if God is going to give us the mitzvah to live in the moment and to trust in him, that means he must make available to the world the ability to tell the future. Do you understand? But it's a positive commandment. And the Ramban goes out of his way to point out that this idea of living in the moment is a positive commandment. In other words, God says, this is what I want from you, to live in the moment. Now, because of the way the universe is set up, there's always going to be a fork in the road. You can go either way. God gives us that. That's the... It's the greatness of being a human being at every level of spirituality. Up until Moshe's level of spirituality, there's a fork in the road. You can always choose the other way. Which means God has to make available to the world the ability not to live in the moment, the ability to predict the future in a real way. Now that doesn't mean... now, But the path of predicting the future... The path of doing that, the act of doing that, is called the Tzadatuma. In other words, it's not a region within God's awesomeness that there's a Tuma side that you can get to and find out this information. The act of going against the will of God, that act is the Tzadatuma. That act itself is the path of impurity. So, just tying it together with what we've been discussing up until now, we have to make plans, and we have to be organized, and we have to have a direction for our life. You can't be free. Rav Shlomo says you cannot be free unless you have a plan. You must have a plan, otherwise you're not free. Nonetheless, within the context of having a plan, God wants us to be in the moment, and he wants us to be us in the moment, And he wants us to convey our uniqueness. And by doing that, you never know when you're a step away that the next step is, oh, check it out, what's that? There's a bush and it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Whoa, 